HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by greatbrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43. It's October 16, 2012. We're in the middle of Cider Week, New York, here at Roberta's in Bushwick. We're sponsored by GreatBrewers.com. Thanks to them, you can check out Beer Cloud and the Great Beer Test. You can learn more about beer at GreatBrewers.com. And thanks to our community of Good Beer Seal bars, GoodBrewSeal.com. You can learn more about places to get really good beer and cider in New York City. And uh, here I am with Dave Broderick from Blind Tiger and the new Worthy Burger up in, uh, was it, South Royalton, Vermont? Hey, Jimmy. Yep, South Royalton. You know, it's appropriate that you're here on our Cider Week show because, uh, you know, you have made cider, and one of my favorite ciders ever you made with your buddies from Fable Farm up That's there That's right. In Vermont. Hopefully we can do it again. No cider this year, but uh, hopefully next year. Well, it's, it's great to have the cider show on. Sarah Grady is uh, from... Glenwood. Hey, Jimmy. And uh, you're you're one of the creators of Cider Week. Welcome to the show. Thanks. And we have our, our home brewers who've been on before, our home cider makers. Uh, we've got Joy and Jeremy from what they call Proper Cider. That's hello, it. hello. All right, welcome back. And we're going to have Steve Wood from Farnham Hill and Dan Wilson from Slybro Cider calling in later in the show. All right, guys. So we're, we're drinking cider. Um, you guys are Joy and Jeremy. You're the first people we'll talk to. I, I love what you guys do. We, a couple, a year or two ago, you were on the show. You talked about how you made cider at home. Mm-hmm. You made some funky stuff. You made some good stuff. <laughs> uh, how long have you been making cider at home now? Well, we picked up our first pile of apples in 2004 from the green market, brought them home, and made, out of like 60 pounds of apples, made, I don't know, two gallons, something like that, two or three gallons. And then uh, from there, every year we doubled until we make um, a little over 100 gallons. This year will be different because there's a big apple problem in New York, as you've heard about. Um, but yeah, we've been doing it since about 2004. Upgraded yeah. from the green market. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, one thing, I, last time you were on, we, we posted on our blog on the group of Seal. It said, these are the steps to making home cider. It said, harvest, sweat, wash and chop, grind, press, ferment taste and blend and bottle it's essentially everything that you do to to make like a wine really i mean we we ended up 
calling our cider proper cider because we spend so much time explaining to people what it is. Now, all those steps there that you listed, that wouldn't apply to someone who just buys juice. You know, If you just buy juice and pitch yeast in it, that's going to make cider too. It's not what I would call proper cider though. Proper cider you, you know, starts with apples. And not all apples sweat. We've learned some some apples actually don't sweat very well. Why, why don't you yeah? Why don't you explain the sweating process? Because I don't think a lot of people know that and why it's so important to do that. Okay, so you pick an apple off the tree. It's maybe not exactly ready to to turn into a cider. It's maybe not sweet enough. The sugars haven't developed. Um, take it home and uh, let it hang out. Let it just breathe a little bit. The moisture evaporate, evaporates, uh, the sugars condense, and you're going to get a little bit more uh, higher alcohol. So, you know, depending on the kind of apple, if it's like a russet, if it's a more hardy apple, it can sweat a really long time. Um, and I know apple growers have like nitrogen rooms. They can keep apples indefinitely, you know, at least a year. But we have pests and, you know, you can't keep them in the house because then your fruit flies come. And so we'll, we'll sweat them for a week or two if they're not ready. And then um, they dehydrate a little bit, a little of the water leaves. Then, then it's time to grind them up. And then uh, the grinding part's the most difficult thing for a home cider maker because um, you, you can't just do it in a – well – you can do it in a food processor. It just takes a long time. Our buddy Andre used a food processor. I think he burnt one out doing it. We used to use a juice man junior, like a little, you know, consumer juice maker. But eventually, you know, it, it takes about um, a bushel of 45 pounds to make two or three gallons. So as you can see, this is so you need a big grinder. So it's expensive, too. Well, yeah, unless you build a grinder. I built one out of a garbage disposal. It was the first time it ever been used. It was stainless steel so it doesn't affect the apple acids or anything um but yeah the grinding is the tough part we we when we did use like a food processor juice man uh we would take the pulp and we still we knew there was juice still in that apple pulp and we put it in like um sanitized pillowcases <laughs> to wring it out and now i built um like a hydraulic shop press i turned it into a joy's going to show you a photo I turned it into. Um, Do you guys have an a site press. where we can learn more about this too? Well, yeah, um, propercider.com. I think I own that one. Slantycider.com. At least find it on Facebook, Proper Cider. Just use the Google machine. You Dave, won't learn anything there as much as you will by visiting our Facebook page. Yeah. Probably. Are they doing what, what, what your guys up in Vermont are doing or other small cider makers are doing? Um, yeah, definitely what we're doing. Um, we, we pretty much follow those steps as much as possible. Um, have a hydraulic press with that has a really you know pretty good grind. I mean, it's the press is from 1908, but the uh, grinder has been updated a few times. <clears throat> so, uh, and we definitely try to sweat the apples, and you know, especially as the as we get late into the season. I don't know if you guys have done any late harvest apples. Those and, are the best ones. Yeah. Um, so it, it really changed. Like when I first start pressing in August. The cider is like pretty low in alcohol, you know, 4%, and ferments really, really fast. And then I notice it takes longer and longer as the season, you know, as the sugar goes up and, and, uh, and the, the season progresses. It takes longer and is more interesting um, in taste. All right. Well, hey, Cider Week next. So Sarah Grady from Glenwood, uh, tell us how you got involved with working with Apple, the Apple Project. Tell us a little about that and how that led to Cider Week New York. Yeah, so... 
<clears throat> Glenwood is an agricultural nonprofit in the Hudson Valley, and our mission is to support the viability of farms in the region. So we got interested in hard cider as an opportunity for orchards. There have been a lot of challenges for orchards over the last couple decades. So hard cider is a higher value product that can help those orchards to be more viable. And we started last year with an exchange program between a group of producers in the Hudson Valley and a group of cider and calvados makers in Normandy, France. And as I was putting that project together, you know, I started reaching out to some of the more established craft cider makers in the Northeast and asking them, what's your biggest challenge right now? And they kept talking about developing the market, cultivating the market, and the fact that cider really doesn't have a category in the industry. So we started talking about what we could do to build more awareness of cider, more appreciation for real craft cider. And Cider Week, you know, the idea of Cider Week was born and a lot of great... um, partners and supporters like you, Jimmy, helped us get it off the ground. And last year was the first year, um, sort of put the word out for bars and restaurants and shops to get on the cider train. (laughs) And we had a hundred establishments participating in the first year. And now in the second year, we have 200. Um, And the idea really is just to get those establishments interested in cider and featuring cider and figuring out how to integrate cider into their you know whether it's a it's a, um, a pub or a restaurant or a wine store, and um, you know it's been really amazing to watch the watch the learning curve and watch the watch the level of response rise just in the just in a matter of a year. Um, so it's well, the first year was really great. It, it was well run, and, and I I would point to people. I would say, hey, if you want to find a list of the top restaurants and bars in New York, go to Cider Week. Because anybody that, that was, you know, Northern Spy in the East Village, they would have a nice list of six or seven really good regional ciders. And uh, that never happened. You could barely find one or two good ciders on any menu in New York before Cider Week. So yeah. I think you definitely made an Im- impact on the market, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's just been in the zeitgeist, first of all, you know, sort of ciders moment. But it, but also, um, you know, I think, I think those places that have joined Cider Week do already have, you know, a, a genuine interest in supporting regional producers, and there's actually also a lot of sophistication amongst this particular group of professionals that's responded to this, so it's not like we've had to sell it very hard to them. What's the connection with the people from Normandy and Calvados? Yeah, so we um, were invited to collaborate with this group of producers from a region of a, a southern part of Normandy called La Perche where they make a lot of cider in Calvados. And we put together a group of producers from the Hudson Valley, mostly cider makers, a couple of distillers, almost all growing their own apples. And um, we took them to France for a week last November. So it's like a meeting a meeting of the minds, a seeing how they do exchange. it. Okay. So yes. what, what, which were some of the or, orchard growers and cider makers from America that you brought to France? Well, Dan Wilson from Slybro, who's going to call in today. Jason Grisanti from Doc's Draft. Elizabeth Ryan from Hudson Valley Farmhouse. Um, there's a really small producer up in, near Red Hook called Annandale Cidery, Adam and Doug Finke. Um, Tim Dressel from Dressel Orchards, who just started Kettleboro Cider House. Joel Elder, who's the head distiller at Tuttletown. Derek Grout, who makes Core Vodka. Um, Soons? Jeff, Jeff. Soons, yep. that's right, from um, Orchard Hill Cider Mill, which is in the process of launching right now. Uh-oh, I might have missed somebody. I'm going to be in trouble if I did. That's a pretty good <laughs> list of people. Yeah, it's Were you there for this? Yes. This I must would. have been interesting. You've got a bunch of upstate farmers hanging out in France with the 
the French farmers. Yeah, and we also hosted the French group in the Hudson Valley for a week. So we had the French team here in the States, and then we sent the Americans over to France for a week. And um, yeah, a lot of different perspectives and ideas. You had some busy translators, probably. We did. We did. (laughs) We had some good franglais. Yeah, good. good. Especially when you're drinking cider. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Question is, how much cider can you drink? Like, uh, it's, it's Cider Week in New York now, and uh, I've enjoyed cider at several great events. And uh, after a while, I'm like, you know, some of the ciders I really like, but, but I, I feel like it kind of sometimes fits. I think it's about cider styles. Like, mm-hmm. many of the styles are, are similar to, like, an aperitif or, or a light white wine where they're, they're refreshing and, and simple. I know that Steve Wood from Farmville, we were talking yesterday about, he feels that when he can actually run his cider through, like, a draft system, get a little more carbonation, he, he, he thinks that... It can keep up with, with beer and other products. I think the, the, the real issue is the style. We're talking about bringing cider to market. It's the style because so many of, of the bottled ciders are, are slightly sparkling or not sparkling at all. And I think when you run it, when you run it through a draft system, it becomes a, diff- a different beverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, More of a session, session beverage, you think? Yeah, definitely sessionable because at some point it's not just tart. And does it, 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 I think that running through – like I had Farnham Hill on draft at an event on Saturday. I could keep drinking that. Sometimes in the bottle I can have two or three glasses and then my palate wants something different. Okay. Well, speaking of the French ciders, they retain a whole lot of residual sugar. They use the process of keeving. And personally, I, I mean, I, can, I love it. But if I have a whole bottle of it, it my insides just go crazy because there's a lot of sugar still in those. Whereas um, the stuff here, at least um, Farnham and the stuff that we're making, there's no sugar left. So, you know, your body, your body, you know, if you're not used to that sugar... But that is part of coming to market is actually f- is deciding what, what, what are the different ways to serve mm-hmm. the cider. Like I know in France they have Pomo, which is mm-hmm. one of my favorites. It's cider with some Calvados. You know, that takes it to a higher alcohol level. Mm-hmm. That's something nice to finish the meal. And, and we have done full cider dinners where, where there's so many styles. And uh, I feel like they, that, that's where the American cider makers are just getting started. Where like the ones like I had Harvest Moon cider uh, the other day, Farnham Hill cider. These are, the, are my go-to ciders. Um, but they're still they're, they're making like a, a simple style, no matter how good. So I feel like that there's a lot more room for them to grow, you know? Yeah, I mean, I you know, one of the things I keep trying to remind people is that there's this um, incredible diversity of ciders, you know, and um, because we haven't really had a thriving cider industry in this country for quite some time, it's just something that people are less familiar with. So they want to either say, well, is it a wine or is it a beer? You know, I mean, how, how, do, I, how do I think about it? And I just think you have to think of it as its own thing. And there are different styles, you know, that make it maybe um, fit more into like a beer culture. And then there are different styles that fit more into sort of a wine culture. And, 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 and frankly, I think that's also why we're seeing this amazing range of locations participating in Cider Week, because you've got like craft beer joints, and then you've got fine dining restaurants. And, um, and yeah, and you have things like Pomo, which is typically um, consumed as an aperitif, but then you have ice cider, which is a dessert wine. And, um, you know, and I think, I mean, I think that that's, that's the thing that people should be exploring. You know, introduce yourself to this world of cider because there's so many different styles and different flavors. And the Americans are still experimenting. You know, oh, these, yeah. the French ciders, they're governed by a list of rules. They have to stay within these rules to make what they're making because they have a long tradition. It's an AOC. It's like a Reinheitsgebot. It's a kind of set of rules. I mean, even in beer drinking, if it's an IPA, it's it's a certain IBU, right? It's got it's got some rules to it. And the cider makers are, are trying a little bit of this, trying a little bit of that. Let's do a little bit in oak. Let's do carbonated. Let's do flat, like you know what we have here with, with Farnham. And we're still trying to figure everything out. 
Yeah, that was actually one of the interesting dynamics of this exchange project, you know, is that um, this group of French producers is trying to get an AOC designation for their cider. So they, you know, they have guidelines that they have developed and that they're, you know, that they're adhering to. And then they come here and they see this wild innovation and experimentation. And on the one hand, it was really easy for them to you know, tell us that we were doing things wrong. Yeah. And on the other oh, hand, yeah. they were really jealous, you know, because they don't the have that same inventiveness and freedom. And um, and particularly, you know, the all of the marketing opportunities that we have here, they don't have as much of that there. So there was a really interesting tension between this idea of tradition and quality and this idea of innovation and experimentation and openness. It would be, in France, it would be illegal for me to travel around with this bottle in the car. That's how it is over there because it has to be certified. It has to go through a set of rules. And if you're a producer, that's for the non-producer. If you're a producer and it tastes like that, it's not cider. You can't sell it. Sorry. Try again. And what's the difference? I mean, what, how does proper cider uh, – and I, you know, it's two different tastes going on here in, these, mm-hmm. in both of these bottles. What, you know, what makes it – Versus the French? Yeah. They do this process called keeving, which is just retaining residual sugar. You know, you have that in beer, you're able to, you've got sweeter, heavier beers. Um, With our cider, we're making it more like a wine. But in France, they're doing it similar to a beer. They're retaining some of that residual sugar. You've got your your demi-sec, your brut, and your dew. And it's just a different process that you go through to strip out some nutrients so the yeast stops working. And so it stays really sweet. And you can't make what we're doing. You have to have that residual sugar. Otherwise, it's not Normand. Cool. All right. This is Going Somewhere. We'll be back in a few minutes talking with Steve Wood from Farm Hill Cider on Beer Sessions Radio. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Right here at Roberta's in Bushwick, enjoying some uh, homemade cider from uh, Proper Cider, Jeremy and Joy. How are you guys? Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thanks for bringing us on. Yeah. We love chatting about cider, and our friends are sick of it. You know, that's all we talk about. Well, you're on the right show today. <laughs> and we've got Steve Wood on the line from New Hampshire. Steve, are you there? I am. Steve. Hey, Steve. How are you, buddy? I, I was lucky to spend. We, we had a Harvest Beer and Cider event and, in Williamsburg on Saturday and a, a cidered beer dinner last night at Jamie's Number 43. I got to hang out with Steve Wood, and uh, thank you, man. We had a great time. Uh, thank you, pal. That was, it, was, it was fabulous. But I'm, I'm back in chilly New Hampshire now. <laughs> so we're doing what you said. We've got a couple of your ciders. We got the, we're going to start with the extra dry because I really like your, your, uh, the Farnham Hill, the extra dry cider. It's one of my favorite ciders I had all, all weekend in New York. Um, we've, got, we've got some home cider makers here, Joy and Jeremy, Sarah Grady from Cider Week New York, and Dave Broderick from Blind Tiger. Um, Steve, tell us about the Extra Dry and how that's different from your other ciders. Well, I got a bottle open here, and we can... Parker, there we go. Um, 
so, uh, yeah, the extra dry is stone dry. When we say extra dry, we're not using the French champagne term. You know, French, uh, you know, uh, extra dry champagne is fairly sweet. This stuff is uh, completely dry, no, uh, no residual sugar, no dosage, no return sugar. Um, and it, it, like all of our ciders, is based on... Uh, on the bittersweet apples we grow, you know, a lot of uh, different tannic varieties like Dabinat and Yarlington Mill and Madai Dor, that's what gives it its sort of tannic structure. It's the underpinning. And the, the acidity in it comes from varieties like Wixen and Asopus Spitzenberg and uh, Ashmead's Kernel. Um, and, we, you know, the idea of this stuff is just to, this is in a way, it's our most straightforward cider, with the exception of its occasional uh, cousin extra dry still, which doesn't even have bubbles. But uh, this is this is the real deal. There's nothing there. There's there, there's no, nothing in it but the fruit. <laughs> Steve, are, are these sides? Is this cider um, bottle conditioned? Are you carbonating inside that bottle? No, no, no. It's not bottle conditioned. We 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 have fooled around with bottle conditioning a fair bit, uh, and actually, bottle conditioning isn't. Bottle conditioning almost isn't a phrase that's appropriate for cider. The method champenoise or the Charmat method, the first being a, a secondary in bottle of uh, 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 secondary fermentation, and the uh, the second being in a tank, which are where they, that, that's that's where you get a natural secondary fermentations and bubbles therefrom. Um, we fooled around with those, and we don't really very much like what that does to the aromas and flavors of the. Uh, of of this fruit as you know as uh, as it's expressed when it is fermented to dryness and allowed to mature. So all of our bubbly ciders are actually they are carbonated. They're carbonated. We do this very very slowly in in uh, in very cold conditions. Slowly meaning over the course of uh, a few weeks, just trickling um, CO2 back into the cider through a through a stone. Which which gives uh, it doesn't give the same kind of tiny bubble that you get from a secondary fermentation, but what it does is to preserve all of the uh, all of the flavors and aromas that you started with without adding things. You know the elements that I think are very cool in champagne, but I think kind of intrude on delicate ciders like this. But it's not the carbonation that's that's intruding. You're you're saying that the process actually changes the flavor it's a little the, bit. It, Fermentation. I mean, the, the, it, it, the, the, uh, whether you finish cider in a in a bottle the way a lot of the French guys do, or whether you induce a secondary fermentation, you're still getting all of those the the the, the, uh, the aromas of fermentation in the bottle. Yeah, the funkiness and the, and the flavors of fermentation in the bottle. And though in many cases I think those are um, pleasant, I don't think they. I, I think they intrude too much on the on the on the aromas and flavors that we are. Stuff. Steve, I'm going to take uh, a, a real step back here. Um, yep. You know, you're, you're an apple grower as well. Um, yeah. How is how is good cider like the, the cider that you make? How is that different from apple juice? From apple juice? Yes, I wanted um, to ask that question. It's got alcohol in it. This is for the, uh, everybody out there listening. How, why is hard okay. cider different than apple juice? How does how is cider different from apple juice? Um, let's see. I mean, um, cider is to apple count the juice ways. as wine is to grape juice. Yeah. So that, that that that's all there is to it. I mean, apple juice is apple juice is the uh, fresh exp- express juice of apples. And I mean, and when you buy apple juice in the supermarket, it's usually been pasteurized and stabilized within an inch of its life. 
but but it's also you know fresh cider is in effect apple juice. Fresh brown cider is in effect apple juice, um, and that's just unfermented. That's the unfermented juice of apples. But the word cider in every country in the world, but the U.S. Well, thank goodness now more and more in the U.S. It denotes the, um, uh, the 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 fermented juice of apples in the same way that the word wine denotes the the fermented juice of of, of grapes. So one's fermented and one isn't. That's that's the whole deal. That's good. I just wanted to ask you that question. Thank you. I think he's pushing <laughs> your buttons. Well, it's good to hear from Steve. Yeah. I mean, if anyone's going to tell us, it's going to be Steve. True. Dave, we got Dave Broderick, who's who's made some cider himself. He owns a Blind Tiger in New York. Dave, you want to ask Steve any questions? Um, <clears throat> how many different kinds of uh, varietals do you have in your orchard? You mean apple varieties? Yeah. Well, we have a couple hundred, but. Um, that's chiefly attributable to the fact that we're constantly experimenting. We're constantly doing grafting trials on varieties that we're interested in. We grow, um, you know, in commercial quantities, I guess a couple dozen, of which about half or so are used in cider. I mean, we also grow eating and cooking apples. The, the orchard, it's, it's a fairly good-sized, you know, commercial orchard. So we, we uh, and about half of our production is dedicated to cider. But uh, so, the, yeah, the cider varieties, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, something like that. I haven't actually bothered to count them up. And, um, and how many gallons of cider do you guys produce a year now at this point? Oh, 17, 18,000, something like that, which is tiny in the in the drinks world. But, uh, God, it's, it's a lot of juice to us. <laughs> Steve, I think I read that you're producing different varietals on the same tree, like experimenting with grafting on, on one tree. Is that is that normal? Are you well, doing that? Well, we do it. Not producing. We, we we when we do grafting trials, which is a way of getting a good a good look at how a how a variety will perform in your growing conditions. Um, what we do is to graft it onto a branch, usually of an old Macintosh tree, because the back you know a settled down tree that's growing in one of our most typical orchards, typical of this place. I mean to say. So that we can get us, we can get a sense as soon as possible of what um, of how that variety performs. But uh, so yeah, there, we've got a lot of trees. We've got two or three varieties on them, but only experimentally. Well, actually, that's not true. There are a few there are a few places around the retail area where we've grafted more than one variety on. But that's just for show. It's just for people's amusement. Um, you know, the or, the orchards are. Uh, Solid blocks of several varieties in each, you know, in each in each orchard. So, Steve, when you're trying to propagate the the cider varieties that work for you and in, in your in your climate, I mean, do you just plant seeds, or is is what's the difference between planting seeds and and grafting uh, from the wood? <laughs> the, well, it's I heard you talking about this on Saturday, so I'm still trying to understand. The information in an apple tree is not carried true in a seed any more than the genetic information is carried precisely true in a human. Um, that you know, you don't look exactly like your brothers and sisters, and you don't look exactly like your parents because you are. We are all a, a mishmash of genetic information. The same is true of apple trees. Um, every seed is a product of, of cross pollination between more than one tree, each of which carries its own genetic information. So, if you planted all the trees off a you know whatever golden delicious tree, you would get thousands of, of little trees, all of which would be related to the parent, but none of which would be identical to it or to each other. The, it's the information, the genetic information is, however, carried true in the wood. 
So if you grafting is a, is a process of it's a veget, it's vegetative propagation. It's a it's a process of basically plugging a piece of wood into a, 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 a growing tree, and everything from the point of the graft, the place where you put the things together, everything that grows beyond that is genetically identical identical to the parent to the to the tree that you, from which you cut that piece of wood. So all um, all apple trees, if you know, a Macintosh orchard or a Gala orchard or a whatever orchard, those are all what they are because of grafting, not because of uh, you couldn't get them from seedlings. You would just get a complete mishmash, which would be interesting, but it would be um, a little bit difficult as a commercial adventure. <laughs> all right, and Sarah Grady from Cider Week, do you want to ask? Steve, anything about well, grafting? Yeah, or? I mean, uh, um, well, the reason I said it is because I'm trying to get somewhere. Cider Week changed. Uh, in, last year, it was it was more broad based in New York. There were some European ciders and other American ciders, but uh, this year it's really focused on the grower, the growers, and the, the farm based ciders in the Northeast. That's right. So I, I'm trying to say, Steve, you're saying that by being a grower and 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 being able to graft your your varieties and all that, the expertise that you have as a grower, do you think that makes you a better cider maker? How's that for a question? Well, um, unequivocally. I mean, but this is a prejudice. I, I, you know, and prejudice with me extends to wine as well. I mean, most of the wines I like best turn out to be made by the by the same outfit of the same family or whatever that grew the grapes. I mean, I think knowing, having an intimate knowledge of your fruit and where it grew and how it grew and actually, if you can, growing it yourself. Um, which is not easy, uh, you know, but, but anyway, growing it yourself, the, the, the person who grows the fruit knows the fruit better than anybody else, and the person who knows the land and has worked on the same piece of land for a long time knows the land better than anyone else. And, um, you know, again, this is a prejudice, but my favorite ciders and my favorite wines are, are ones that reflect the conditions in which the fruit is grown and reflect the fruit itself. So, yeah, just by definition, by my definition, this makes, this, this makes for better ciders. But that's not, I, I, please don't misunderstand, I'm not denigrating ciders made by people who aren't growing their own, uh, their own fruit. I, I just, but I do think it gives, you, it, it gives you a leg up because you understand what you're working with. You, you understand the raw material and its provenance a great deal better if you've grown the damn thing yourself. So. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that I think people don't maybe realize about your orchard is that you essentially converted an orchard of eating apples to an orchard of apples that you may not want to eat because they're being grown for hard cider. And now you have really become a leader in advocating for other cider makers and other orchardists to grow those apples to help the cider industry expand. So my question then would be, as more and more of these true cider apple varieties are produced at a commercial scale, how do you think that that's going to affect the styles of ciders that are available in the American market? Well, I think what it's going to do, I'm, I'm very pleased by this, and we give away a huge amount of grafting wood every year, but this year we've given away a great deal more than we ever have before to growers, which means that some of this fruit is actually going in the ground. And I think, and meanwhile, we sell, you know, we sell thousands of gallons of juice of, of, of this particular cider juice that we grow all over the U.S., Oregon, Colorado, Virginia, all over the U.S., um, to cider makers who are beginning to understand that um, they can't make the ciders they want by just using call dessert apples, you know, call Red Delicious or Johnny Gold or whatever. 
the, 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 there are lots of notions about regional styles, but I don't think a, a regional style really is going to develop anywhere until people are actually using the fruit that's grown, using the good fruit, good cider fruit that's grown in their region. And so I'm really encouraged by all the stuff that's going into the ground now because what it suggests in my mind is that, first of all, there will be more good cider fruit out there. So the general level of quality of ciders is going to continue to rise, which it has been doing for the last decade or so. But also, there will be more and more ciders that really do reflect their regions because they'll be made from apples, whether they're made from by the growers themselves or by somebody who's buying from their local grower buying fruit from their local grower, they will reflect the growing conditions. They'll reflect the apples that those regions are really able to grow well. And every patch of ground um, imposes conditions on what can be grown well there. It doesn't matter whether it's apples, grapes, or, you know, kumquats. Um, there are varieties of apples that can be grown to a very high standard here that can't be grown well in Virginia or wherever. The, the same is true uh, in the reverse. There are a lot of apples that we can't grow for spit, that grow brilliantly in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. Why is that? Um, and as that evolves, and as people, growers, really good professional growers, start paying attention to what they can grow well, cider apples they can grow well, regional styles will start to emerge. And I think that's going to be very cool indeed. Steve, one last thing. Um, we just opened a bottle of the Kingston Black. Tell us about that yeah. and how it differs from your other ciders. You all right? You okay? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got any of that in front of me. Kingston Black is the only apple. I, I stole one from the we, last dinner last night. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, that's the only apple that we that it's the only single variety cider we make, and I, most, I, I believe that most, or we believe here, that most most very good cider apples are lacking in something. The ones that provide tannic structure and uh, you know. The, the, are usually low in acid. The acidic ones are don't have much in the way of tannins, but that's a very oversimplified version of, of something that's much broader than that. So most of our ciders, most of our the ciders that you get from us are blends of a, of a number of different apples, but there are a few apples, and Kingston Black is one of them. Uh, it's a variety, Kingston Black, and um, it, it originated near Martock in Somerset in the southwest of England, and um, it's always had a, you know, a reputation for, for being a nightmarish fruit of apple to grow. It's a very difficult tree, but for being able to make a really peculiar but, um, you know, balanced cider in it by itself. And we, we grew a bunch of them. Um, we, we don't grow a lot. We only make about 150 cases of that stuff a year. But it's it's um, it's an outlier. It's not really like our other ciders. It's made by the same approach as our other ciders, but it reflects it reflects the characteristics of that particular variety, which include all kinds of weird things like sort of mu musty forest floor mushroomy things and something faintly uh, resembling um, let's see human affection. There's a lot of <laughs> hormonal stuff in it. You know, musk melon, there are all kinds of weird things going on. And it's got a little bit of a diacetyl like almost butterscotchy characteristic. It used to scare the hell out of us until we figured out that it wasn't a defect of fermentation or maturation, but actually a characteristic of the variety. We just do it because it's cool. We're not going to grow a lot more of it. You know, it's it, but it's uh, I mean, it, you know, it's it, it's a lot of fun. It's not it's not something that I think has enormous commercial potential or anything, but we enjoy making it. So, and, you know, we enjoy drinking it, and the people, but, you know, I mean, we, sometimes people just, you know, they get to the kicks in black, and their eyes light up, and they get all excited. Sometimes people look at you as if you've tried to, you know, 
you poison them. So, <laughs> well, one thing I'll say. We're, we're, so you, I know you also blend it, it, your you other know, ciders. It, it, it's up to an individual whether it's like that. <laughs> Steve, you're awesome. I know that you blend your other ciders, and um, this one is not a blend. Is that the case? Yeah, it's the only one that's not a blend. Yeah, uh, they, and we don't use it in blends either because I mean, if you're tasting it now, you you, you know you, you see it's got. It's got some very peculiar characteristics, very, and they are very distinctive. They, they, they do actually. Again, I was talking about secondary fermentation intruding on aromas and flavors. A lot of the stuff that we're looking for from these apples is pretty delicate. Kingston Black is pretty aggressive, and we just think it ought to just sit off in a tanker. I mean, I've got I think twelve barrels going this year that we just started right before I came to New York for Cider Week. That's it for this year, you know, and they're fermenting happily by themselves, and they can bloody stay by themselves. We're not mixing with anything else. I mean, we'll, we'll occasionally put a little bit into one of our dooryards for the hell of it, but, you know, the dooryard being our sort of movable feast that changes all the time. Yeah. So, hey, but, Steve, but, hold on. But, let, let, but let Dave... Uh, it's, it's all by itself. Dave Broderick so, has one last question. Yeah, Steve, I want to know, like, um, with we had a lot of erratic weather this past spring, and, and uh, were you affected by that at all in terms of the late frost and... And are you worried about that in the future? It seems like the weather is getting a lot more erratic, and that especially affects fruit trees. Yes. <laughs> um, anybody who tells you that people can argue about why the climate's changing, anybody who tells you that the climate isn't changing is, is not out there every day in the climate. Um, and we, you know, we, I am worried about it. Um, I mean, a lot of the one of the elements of terroir, one of the elements of, of uh, most important elements of, of the, you know of the, of the conditions that a piece of ground imposes on the things that can be grown well there is climate. And then the climate starts changing dramatically. That that whole picture starts to change. We lost we lost less fruit than many of our colleagues because a lot of our cider apples and a lot of the heirlooms we grow are actually late flowering. So the extremely insanely early spring this year followed by what was actually a perfectly normal freeze it just it just came late in the life of the tree because the tree woke up early you know we lost less than a lot of our 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 colleagues and you know we 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 made we had a 21 degree day a morning uh a few days ago and i think most of the fruit came through the cider fruit came through it destroyed the the all the stuff we would have picked to pack you know for fresh fruit but uh yeah, yeah. I mean, the answer is yes, we are being affected by but, the climate. But these, and so these cider uh, varietals, these ones that are grown specifically for hard cider, do, fl- I mean, they do have that advantage of flowering later? Some of them do. Look, guys, you got to stop saying varietal. That's a great term. I don't even understand it. It's an adjective. So <laughs> what is the it The whole then? apple world calls them varieties. So if you're going to talk about apples, please talk about varieties and leave the varieties. <laughs> but yeah, they, they, uh, um, they, they, they. Well, it's not completely characteristic of cider fruit, and we meaning that they are late flowering, and we lost the early flowering cider fruit. Um, our Wixen crop got more or less hammered this year. Our Ashmead's curl crop got more or less less hammered this year. Those are early flowering varieties. But you know, Dabinet and Yarlington Mill and Chiseled Jersey and the South of Spitzenberg, those are later flowering varieties, and they were just they were. Um, you know, they were still sleeping when it got cold this spring, so they weren't destroyed. I mean, what, what's happening when that happens at that time of year, you know, you've got these little 
buds that are opening. Each one's got five flowers in it, and you know, the, the once it warms up, they start to open, and then those flowers start to—not the flowers, but the but the but the uh, flower organs start to kind of come out. And hey, Steve, Steve, we got, we got to cut you off for a second. Hold on, it's sorry. Like, it's like freezing a head of lettuce, pal. You can't throw a head of lettuce in your in your freezer by mistake overnight, and then take it out the next morning and make a salad. It ain't lettuce anymore. So. Hey, Steve, listen, uh, c- can you hold on the line for a minute? We're going to take a short break? Sure, yeah, All right, bet. we'll take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes to talk about cider on Beer Sessions Radio. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Here we are with uh, Cider Week New York. We're talking to Steve Wood up in uh, New Hampshire at Farnham Hill Cider. And our home cider makers, Joy and Jeremy, uh, they've got something to share with you, Steve. So We're tasting apples right now. Yeah, we just pulled out an Ashmead's kernel to show everyone what it tastes like. And then we actually fermented an Ashmead kernel by itself because Joy here likes... You know, taking a single variety of an apple and fermenting it to see what it does. So we're tasting the cider and the apple at the same time here. Because we're still learning. I, I, every and he's gone. <laughs> but Keep basically, talking. you know, we're I'm still learning about what these apples do. I go, I can go into the orchard and I can bite an apple and think that it might make an interesting cider, but I don't know myself until I actually have fermented it into a beverage and we brought a single variety of Ashmead's kernel here which we're drinking and and I enjoy it but it's very it's very tart and it's not as complex as a more blended cider which is typically what we do because we like well, I like what Steve said he said the Kingston Black was a sort of and he doesn't blend it but I do think one of one of his uh, strengths is that he's a really excellent blender of ciders mm-hmm. and at uh, one of the Cider Week uh, press previews this year he did a demonstration of how he blended ciders and uh, Steve's really he's, he's, he's a, a great uh, orchardist, he's a really good blender too. So that's what really sets him apart. He's he really knows his stuff. We've also going to have another guest on. Um, I know Dan, are you on the air right now? Hey, I'm right here. All right, Dan Wilson Hicks Orchard and Slybro Ciders. Welcome to the show. We have Sarah Grady from Cider New York, uh, Dave Broderick from Blind Tiger, and uh, Joy and Jeremy, who are awesome home cider makers here in New York. Um, how are you hey. doing, Dan? I'm great. I'm great. Are you going to be down? Are you down in New York, or are you going to be coming down to New York for uh, Cider Week? Uh, yeah, the uh, it seems like a fairly full week. I, I think I'm going to be down for one or two events toward the end of the week. Great. 
Um, I'm yeah. a, I know that you know Sarah from Cider Week, New York. We, the first time I, I met you and the first time I ever really worked with uh, you know local New York ciders, we did a 100-mile dinner uh, maybe five or six years ago at Jimmy's Number 43, and we got some of your Slybro ciders. We had the, the ice wine and the sparkling, and we, and we yep. uh, used that in our dinner. And it was, it was only last year with the first Cider Week New York that we really started bringing back all the different you know regional ciders. Um, how do you feel about um, Cider Week and uh, – are you excited to be bringing product into New York City? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a great uh, uh, opportunity for us, and uh, we are kind of a small cidery based on a very old uh, New York apple orchard. That um, uh, and we've been at it for almost ten years now, and. So uh, we're kind of growing as our orchard uh, and the market kind of uh, uh, demands that we grow. And right now we are uh, just um, uh, breaking into a little bit more of the New York City market, and uh, we're excited about uh, introducing more people to to our ciders, too. Who's Sarah? Hey, Dan. Um, so one of the things we were talking about a little while ago were cider apple varieties, and we t- spoke a bit about the French Exchange Project that you were a part of. And, um, you know, I know one of the things that came out of that experience for many of the um, participants in it was a real enthusiasm about the French cider varieties. And um, there's been a lot of talk about introducing some of these, um, you know, historically more French or more English apple varieties to cider orchards. And one thing that you and I have talked about, I think it would be interesting to hear you speak a little bit about this, is, um, you know, not overlooking those American hard cider varieties, those more historic American hard cider varieties. Can you tell us a little bit about those and some of that history? Uh, Well, I think that... that Certainly there's potential. I think there there are a lot of people that are doing... Uh, research in the direction of, of figuring out uh, what were the most popular varieties for American ciders back in, you know, when, when that was uh, a much more commonly consumed drink. Uh, I know a lot of the russet varieties and pippin varieties seem to uh, be right at the top of the list of things that people are excited about trying. But I, I just think that we're really at the very beginning of uh, figuring all that out. And there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of Talk that I've heard, uh, including on your show about uh, about single variety ciders, and that's really how we got started. Uh, was was just trying to do single variety ciders with everything that we could grow, or that we currently grow, and everything we can get our hands on. And we kind of concluded, as I think Steve rightly pointed out, that that uh, the making of a good cider is, is kind of a, a blending or a blender's art. That there's uh, there are some good strong characteristics from uh, a number of varieties. There are a lot of varieties that make a very insipid cider that really can't contribute anything to, I think, a good finished product. But the idea is that you learn from uh, from fermenting fermenting single varieties what the what the strengths and weaknesses are, so you can kind of construct a an interesting cider from those. I, the, the the source of those varieties, I think, can be very broad. I think. There are, uh, I think that there are a lot of American varieties that we should be working with, uh, and um, but probably more off the beaten path. Some of the more traditional varieties, I think, uh, might uh, might might be uh, a, a more interesting venue rather than some of the, the dessert varieties that uh, uh, that are all about being uh, you know uh, sweet and crunchy. Um, 
as far as French varieties or English varieties, there are more of those that we're able to play with in the United States. From uh, and and I think a lot of the varieties that uh, Steve Wood is growing, uh, which kind of leads to uh, what uh, the rest of us are, are starting to grow, are more the traditional English varieties. Uh, as far as what we saw in Normandy last year, there are boy, there's 150 varieties there that I have yet to see very much of at all in the United States. And in fact, only uh, uh, have uh, noticed from one or two orchards some of the same varieties that we saw uh, uh, grown in France that are kind of their standard varieties. So there's a lot of work to be done. All right, man. Yeah, Steve, I had a question. Um, I bought a farm up in Vermont, and um, it was a stagecoach stop and tavern um, back in 1784, and they planted a lot of cider trees around it to supply it. And so a lot of the trees are 200-plus years old, and, and uh, I have no idea. They're, you know, they're, I make cider from them. I have no idea what the varieties are. Um, and you, I, I heard you say in the beginning that you, had, you sort of inherited an, uh, an old orchard. Um, like how do you? Well, fu- not nearly that old. We're, our our oldest trees are about 120 years old, okay. and they're they're fairly clearly identified. And a lot of those actually are fairly standard varieties. Okay. Uh, what I I talk to people who talk who who it, it seems like in our area, every farm, whether it was a dairy farm or not, had some remnants of an orchard because I think, uh, which is indicative of the fact that that uh, cider was a very commonly consumed uh, drink, um, you know, 100 150 years ago. And uh, the varieties are, they're, they're a question mark. And, um, it's probably not as important to know exactly what some of those varieties are uh, uh, if, they, if they make good cider. So um, those are, uh, um, those, but there's a lot of interesting things that I've, I've seen come through our dooryard in, in exactly that way. I can't identify them, but uh, they have some interesting quality. And Dan, you guys actually, are you in New York and Vermont? We're right on the border of Vermont. I'm just a stone's throw away, uh, and uh, yeah, we're um, we're right in uh, in the same kind of uh, same kind of farmland, small farms, rolling hills, in uh, the kind of lower Champlain, Upper Hudson area. So you're saying that if if the house I grew up in, there was a, a gnarly old apple tree in the backyard, and the apples always never came out looking like something you'd want to eat. So you're saying back then people probably made those into hard cider. Oh yeah, yeah. I think um, well, you have to, uh, you know, during that time, uh, there was no way of storing food for long term. So you uh, typically, I think that uh, if you had a root cellar, you could store apples for probably a couple months, fresh apples, uh, and you probably drank some fresh juice too. But the the real value of the, of a lot of those apples were to uh, to ferment uh, and. Uh, you know, and if it's a if it's a tree, really, it's two hundred years old. Then they're they're exactly the same apple uh, that that was produced, or the same flavored apple as was produced back then. And uh, and it, uh, a lot of those apples are you know fairly astringent or tart, and um, may not have much in the way of a good eating quality, but might make a, a very interesting cider. So um, hard cider was a way of life for for a long time in America, and it was probably yeah. the only way that people could actually preserve apples. Right. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Well, the, I guess the other part of that too is you know the the whole uh, rewriting of the story of Johnny Appleseed, where it, it, you know we were taught as kids that he brought apples to uh, 
the, uh, the the pioneers on the the frontier in uh, in you know Ohio and Indiana uh, back when that was the western frontier. But the you know the real understanding and the context of what we understand about cider now is that that uh, he was uh, as uh, he was as well regarded for bringing alcohol to the frontier, and um, and the value of that was uh, for a homesteader uh, where they were probably. Uh, uh, really struggling to establish themselves in, in an area, it, it provided a safe thing to drink because uh, they were probably reliant on surface water for stream stream water, which uh, uh, would have made them sick to drink. But if they had a, a, a apple juice that they could ferment, the process of fermentation would have killed a lot of the bacteria uh, that uh, would uh, so it would translate to a, a safe thing for them to drink and. And so that's why it was uh, pretty commonly consumed by man, woman, and child, and it really helped them to uh, uh, to kind of uh, solidify their their grasp on their um, definitely. Uh, hey, their Dan, you, you make yeah. some of of my. We're, we're going to wind up soon. You make some of my favorite uh, Northeastern ciders. I love your ice wine. I, I love your sparkling cider, and we I have some home thing. cider makers here. Um, I want you to talk to Jeremy, Jeremy and Dan. Talk about what you do as a home cider maker. How is that similar to what uh, Slybro is doing and vice versa? How, how is it different? Well, listen, Dan, I'm still afraid of the water. There's weird stuff in there, right? <laughs> so like John Adams, I drink a tankard of cider every morning because it settles my stomach and prevents gas. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And that's why we make the cider, you know. And we can't find stuff that we make because it's funky and weird, and you can't really sell stuff that's funky and weird. I, I think it's been a while since I've had the Slybro, but um, mm-hmm. well, I don't know. If you have funky and weird friends, then you can sell it to them. But but <laughs> Dan, all right, so Dan, give us a rundown. How, how do you make your cider? You start with the apples, and uh, tell us the basic steps so we, we can follow you on on the air. Sure. Well, we are um, like I said earlier. We we. Uh, we did not take at face value the, the common notion that uh, that you can't make cider out of certain varieties. So we had to prove that to ourselves. And so we grow, uh, or at that time, we grew about 20 different varieties of apples, most of them eating varieties, and we made cider out of them out in single-batch varieties. And we started out like most home brewers did in uh, working in carboys and uh, five-gallon buckets and... Uh, in the room in the back of the apple barn that my wife called the mad scientist room, and it, it invariably attracted uh, all kinds of uh, people who kind of mysteriously uh, figured out what we were doing back there. And so we got a lot of good information from uh, from other home brewers that way too. Uh, and we found that um, uh, uh, through our experiments, what we could make interesting ciders from, because again, as I said before, there are uh, there are pretty subtle flavors in cider, and, and to, to make something that has some richness or complexity, you need to kind of blend notes to get something that, that has uh, a little bit more depth or a little bit more character, um, and, and the, the elements you're playing with are, you know, the, the sweetness of the fruit, the, the certain flavor qualities of fruit, and then uh, in more, in, in acidity, which is another very important part of the, the kind of the crisp quality of cider. But then there are the more earthy notes and the, the tannic notes that uh, 
especially some of these, uh, you know, bittersweet and bitter sharp and some heritage varieties can contribute to a cider. Are you guys blending um, those in the field? So are you fermenting them together or are you blending them after well, the fermentation it, or both? As we, as, we get, as we get more confidence, we're doing that. But we find that there, there's a lot of difference, again, in, uh, well, not just from varieties, but from one season to the next. And we found that we have most control over the flavor of our finished ciders if we continue to ferment in single variety batches. Yep. And uh, so originally that was a five gallon bucket. Now it's an eight hundred gallon tank. So you get to see uh, what each apple does separately and then put them together. Yeah, and 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 so what that allows us to do is to, uh, if we have a uh, one of our most popular varieties or our ciders is called Hidden Star, which is mostly Northern Spy, which is kind of a traditional New England uh, uh, baking apple, a little bit on the tart side, and then a, a fairly new variety called Liberty, which is one that, you know, it's a, a scab-resistant variety that we can grow organically. And uh, there's also a fairly tart variety, and, and together they produce a fairly crisp-flavored cider. But when we do it in single-variety batches, it allows us to kind of change the ratio from one year to another just to kind of get a uh, more consistent flavor in the in the finished cider, as we, we kind of have to uh, tweak the balance of uh, of the uh, you know the ratio of the, between the two varieties to get uh, uh, to get the the right note that we're looking for. Oh, dude, that's awesome! <laughs> One thing I love about being on the air is I, I like the listening to you know true you know people like yourself who are really excellent in your field and you have a lot to share. And I'm, I'm looking forward to having you on again because um, we could definitely keep this conversation going further. Um, Our show is wrapping up. So I'd like to give a a shout-out to everyone who's been on board tonight. we got Dave Broderick from Blind Tiger, Sarah Grady from Cider Cider Week NY, uh, Joanne Jeremy from Proper Cider, who are all going to have a lot more to say about this in the future. And thank you to Steve Wood and uh, you, Dan, from Slybro. Um, We'll give a quick shout-out. There's some events. Cider Week New York is still going on. You can go to CiderWeekNewYork.com and, and check out. There's a lot more things happening, including Mary Cleaver, our good friend, is hosting a tasting uh, this weekend. Yes. And uh, where, when is that? That's actually a private event. Ooh. <laughs> well, Can't go, Jimmy. Go to Cider Week NY. I got invited, though. All right, Dave, anything going on? Uh, you have any cider at Blind Tiger this week? Um, yeah, we got Farnham Hill on. Um, and uh, But tomorrow night we've got Dogfish Head for uh, their annual All event. Right. And Joy and Jeremy, anything going on with with your uh, your home cider making? Are you going to do a club or something? We're going to do we're going to do some in house tasting. So check out Proper Cider on Facebook. Come over and taste with us, um, or don't. You know. Yeah, we're in production right now. We picked up uh, ten bushels of apples last weekend, and we've got a lot of crushing and pressing and uh, All right. cider to make still this week. Well, Come over you, and we, check it out. We heard it's it's very inspiring. listening to Steve Wood. Uh, who we know has really been at the forefront of uh, – we're going to call them the, the grower uh, cider makers. And uh, and Dan from Slybro as well. You guys really have a, a lot to say, and we're definitely going to talk to you guys more in the future. And, uh, hey, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Beer Sessions Radio. Uh, thanks again, Dave, Sarah, Steve, Joy, Jeremy, and Dan, for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers, Jack Inslee and Brie O'Connor, and engineer Joe Galarraga. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. Cider Sessions. Cider Sessions. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, 
or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.